wonderful story. You go to verse 23. So I'll take verse 8. Jaden will take verse 9. Second so. Kings chapter 6. Alright. It says this. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. And he consulted with his servants saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God said to the king of Israel saying, Beware that you do not pass this place. The Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which one of us is, which, which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elijah, prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he says, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elijah. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was, when they had led him to Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes. And they saw him, there they were, inside Samaria. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But he answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them, that they may eat and drink, and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them, and after they, they ate and drank, he sent them away, and they went to the master. So the, so the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Let's pray. What a totally cool story, mm-hmm. God. I just love your sense of humor and how you record things like this that just, I know so desperately that you want to speak to us tonight. So I pray, Lord, that you would just perfectly address us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us right where we can hear and speak in a way that we get that we understand Lord you know those areas that we are hot in battle right now you know those areas Lord that uh, that we're unaware of and those areas we'd rather not even think about but you are a God who serves in totality you reach to beyond the symptom to the cause to do more than simply therapy but rather to the cure 
And tonight, Lord, speak. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive all that you have for each of us tonight. And God, I just want to thank you so much for this time. We deem every second we pray. Will we be so glad we came tonight? God, immerse me, please, in your Holy Spirit that you would be seen. And come upon me, Lord, by the power of your Spirit so that you would do what only you can do through me. God, now I pray. May you cause your scripture to burst open, come alive, color in the black and white, and may we have so much fun in your word. May we be challenged, encouraged, instructed, equipped for every good work, corrected where needed, Teach us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would say today is any. Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Let me put things into context. Last time you remember, there was a retreat to Axhead. We're roughly at about 848 BC. Two major landmark moments. Israel went into civil war roughly about 921 B.C., and will be taken captive in 721 B.C. It's 200 years. We are now roughly 80 years in. In those 80 years at this point, which means we're roughly about 120 to 130 years uh, to the fall, to where the area of the north, now called Israel, 10 tribes, will be taken captive by Assyria and by Tiglath Pileser III. Now, for what it's worth, uh, in the north, it's called Israel, and Ahab's second son now, his name is Jehoram, is ruling in his place. That is, the, in essence, the ninth king up there. Just to make things even more complicated, in the south, which is called Judah, from where we get the term Jew, Jehoshaphat's son, also named Jehoram, is ruling there. Now, they call him Yoram to try to make it easy, but understand, often that vav that's used in Hebrew can be interchangeable, like instance, People might say Yeshua or Yehoshua, but the term is still the same. Mm-hmm. Now, with that in mind, so we can say, you want to be a horn, but basically we could just say Jerry or Joe, and it doesn't really matter, or Bob. They're both the same names in essence on both sides. Bob or Bobby. Does that make sense? Now, to make things even worse, I remind you, the North has never had a good king and will not of the 19 kings they have, and every one of them is horrible, but Dad was just as big a spiritual doofus as you've ever seen. He was a horrible jerk. And now, again, this is his second son ruling in his place. And his sister is married to the guy in the south. And, by the way, and her name is Italia. We'll meet her later as Psycho Grandma. Don't worry, that time's coming. But, just to let you know, she did chip off the old block. Who is her mom? Jezebel. Yeah, so it gets definitely in the family gene. So, so here's the idea. We're roughly at, again, about 848 B.C. is about the time we're looking at here. To put things into perspective, Elijah left about, Eliyahu, the first guy, Elijah, left about three years ago. That puts you into things. Let me kind of fill you with on the last decade of the time here in regards to this. A decade ago, roughly ten years ago, this guy, the guy in the north, his dad, Ahab, Ahaz, was the guy who went into battle. Now, if you remember this story, it started with a besieging. And this is First Kings 20. 
Now, understand there are going to be two basic kinds of battles that we see, and it's going to be important. We'll pull that into us in a moment. But basically what you have is a besieging, and you have raiders. Now, get the idea of what raiders are like. Raiders are a full frontal, you know, unexpected, blindside attack. It's very quick, it's very hard, and it's devastating. On the other side of besieging is the opposite. It is a slow and painful and treacherous. They surround a city, because traditionally cities are up on a hill, because then you have gravity in your favor. You can roll things like rocks at people when they come at you. But also the problem is, is that water tends not to go up, up uphill. So what happens is when they surround the city, usually what that means is it starves and drowns them out. That's kind of the idea. So a besieging is a slow, long battle. It isn't as hard-hitting and all of that. It's usually a dwindling. And might I just say, you're going to face both kinds of battles in your own life. There are going to be those times where you get blindsided. You know, you are just... You, you, you didn't see it coming, and all of a sudden it's like you blink, and then you're like, how in the world did I wind up here? And there will be these moments. On the other side of it, there are those things that you seem like you're just struggling with forever. It's like, when in the world is this going to end? And what we're going to learn, God willing, next week, is that just because a besieging or those kind of battles are, can last a really long time, it doesn't mean that the solution has. We're going to see that there's going to be a guy of very little faith, and basically he winds up in a sort of a Cincinnati Who concert situation. I don't know if you know what happened. The guy was trampled out there. Anyway, so, so give me on this for a second. About ten years ago, roughly nine, ten years ago, Ahab, again, guy in the north, dad, was besieged in Samaria. That's the capital of the north. And as they were besieging in all of this, remember that was when the guy's like, give me all your stuff. First of all, give me all your cute kids and your cute wives. Not interested in the ugly ones. And um, <laughs> generally that's what he asked. And the, and the king's like, yeah, yeah, cool. Go ahead. But I remind you, he's married to Jezebel. So maybe he'd be like, please take my wife. That's good. <laughs> but, but in all of that, then he's like, oh, that was easy. Well, then give me all your stuff. And he's like, hmm, I draw the line with that. You can have my wife and kids. You cannot have my iPhone 10. So uh, with that, then they go into battle. And when they go into battle... Basically, Syria gets whooped. Now, understand, Syria at this particular moment is the hottest item. They are the biggest battle. Uh, Assyria is going to take over soon. Uh, by the way, it's important to note, Assyria at this point is in a tremendous amount of decline. And if it wasn't for one major situation, they may have ceased altogether to exist. Do you know what the situation is? is they, were, they, had a, they had their own civil war, and that civil war brought all kinds of horrible things. And they were really in a rough spot. And then a guy shows up being barfed out of a fish. Does this sound familiar? Tells them to repent because the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. Now, it is also important to know, I don't know if you've ever looked on a map, Nineveh today is called Nineveh. So that's actually fairly easy to find. One of the things you might find alarming, I do, is it's nowhere near water. So it isn't like, unless there is like this, supernatural vomit launch with all due respect, not trying to be gross. That guy had to walk an awful lot like that. So, anyways, all of that said, they repent and Assyria becomes they're basically reborn as a nation. And from that, they become strong enough to become some of the most treacherous, horrible, cruel people to take the North captive, for what it's worth. In this particular time, though, Syria, not Assyria, which today Syria is called 
Syria. Uh, they're also, they're the big guys on campus at the moment. So, they surround them, so when Israel wins this, this is a crazy, this is a crazy victory. They gather together and say, well, they're up on a hill, their God must be a hill God, let's get him in a valley. Clearly he's not a valley God. And so they get him in the valley, and now they're at effect, and they get whooped again. But crazy as it is, at all of that, the king of Syria, his name is Ben-Hadad, ben is spared. They took him captive, and the king, Ahab of, of Israel, goes, What? He's my brother! Which makes no sense at all. And, and so he's like, Oh, what's a couple battles and a couple hundred thousand people, whatever it is. And with it, the king of Syria goes, I tell you what, all that land that like we took from your dad, we're going to give it back. That was ten years ago. Fast forward three, four more years. Because then there's a situation at a vineyard. But then three, four more years later, three years later, the king of the north goes, you know, we never got any of that land. Let's go get it. So he, hired, he jumps into to the saddle with the guy himself, Judah, his name is Jehoshaphat. And he's like, let's go to battle. And I remember, it is in that battle, ultimately, that Ahab dies. So, that was roughly seven years ago. Six, seven years ago. Now, that was in Ramon Gilead. Now, after all of that, somewhere like last year, uh, the commander, the chief commander shows up, because he's a leper, asking to be healed. That was like last year. And yet, now, there are still raiders attacking and you think, man, serious, dare I say it, Israel really needs to learn that some politics just don't work with Syria ever. And so here he still wants to attack, and please understand, this is a raider's attack. After this raider's attack, there's going to be a besieging. So both of them are going to happen in the chapter. Crazy as it is, in other words, but the question is, how do you stop the raiders? How do you stop those attacks? Well, you can't necessarily stop the attack, but maybe you can win the attack. And that's what we see in our particular chapter here. Does that make sense? So, again, so here we are, wrapping that up so we can get into our text. We're roughly 848 BC, roughly eight and a half centuries south of, you know, the, in the BC time. And we're in a ten-year battle with Syria. They're the perennial enemy of Israel. And it says the king of Syria, I remind you, it's like the last thing we saw that had to do with Syria was that the commander got healed. Um, and now the king of Syria wants to make war against Israel and consulted with his servants and he says, I can't be in such and such a place. So he's talking, where do we set up to go and fight these guys? Now, I don't know if you know this, to this day, there are buffer zones between Syria and Israel. Uh, the area that you look at that's called the Sea of Galilee, just to the right of it, it's called Golan. That particular area was originally... Uh, Syrian territory. The problem is it's up on a hill as well, and that gives Syria the advantage. And they were just throwing bombs mm-hmm. into Capernaum, into Bethsaida, the places that still people still live. Mm-hmm. And Israel's like, we really can't have that. So they drove them back. But when they drove them back, what Syria did is they filled that area with mines. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we've been there, actually, at times where we've actually helped rescue kids from those mines that Syrians would put their own children in the minefields because the UN doesn't allow them to shoot at soldiers. But if they put their kids there, they know that the Israeli IDF force will actually rescue their children. So then they shoot at the mines. Because if they can shoot at the mine, technically they're not shooting at a soldier. Now they're going to kill their own children 
Right. Some people are soldier too. It, it's it's insane. It's insanity. But to this day, there's still problems like this. All of that said, the king's like, where do we fight? Where are we going to fight these guys? Now, <clears throat> while he's setting that up, we have this beautifully humorous situation. It says, the man of God in verse 9. Do you guys see that? Now, one of the things in studying, and you want to be careful, is something called an article. And there are two basic kinds. There's an indefinite and a definite article. A definite article is the word the. Now, let me say it this way. If I were to say, Jaden, you're the man. Well, that's specific. If I were to say, Jaden, you're a man, we'd kind of go, well, that was kind of redundant and saying the same thing over again. You know, uh, and unnecessary saying the same thing over again. And the whole point of it is, is that a definite article says it's a specific one. Now, who is the man of God? Interesting, because in chapter 4, Elisha, this guy, is called it eight times. In chapter 5, in our previous chapter, it says in 5 verse 8, so was when Elisha, the man of God, the man of God. Verse 20, it says, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God. Ver chapter 6, verse 6, and the man of God said, well, it seems to me that it's Elisha. And of course, that's going to play out. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I love letting the Bible be the best commentary on the Bible. Because mm -hmm. that's the one you can be confident in. Fair enough? Mm -hmm. But here's the part that is disturbing to me. The last seven verses, and I should say the first seven verses of the chapter. Do you remember what took place there? Obviously a guy got his axe head back. It actually wasn't even his. Do you remember it was borrowed? Why did he lose his axe head? Because he swung it. Why did he swing it? He was chopping down a tree. Why was he chopping down a tree? Can anyone tell me? Okay, yeah, so they had to build a bigger place. For whom? The sons of the prophets. It was a school of the prophets. And it wasn't, and it was, there's clearly more than one. Jericho, Gilgal. There are several schools of prophets, Bethel. Is there something weird to you? Because it is to me that God says, Here's a guy teaching at the school of prophets, or a school of prophets, but he's the man of God? Doesn't that sound weird to you? Because it sounds weird to me. You would think he would be one of the men of God. Mm -hmm. It's a school of prophets, and there was, not only is it a school of prophets, it's a school of prophets that's too small because there's too many prophets for the school, so they have to build a bigger school for the prophets. But there's one guy that's called the man of God. That just sounds weird to me. But then it makes sense that this is one of the problems in Israel. And can I say, it's one of the problems we could say, if we're going to be honest like Nehemiah and say we're part of the problem that, that we have as Christians, is that there are all kinds of big churches and there are all kinds of big seminaries and there are all kinds of big things and nothing's wrong with it being big. But how many men of God can you find that are really sold out, wholehearted, following Jesus and not just making Jesus their butler? Because just because there's a whole lot of people and people are doing a building renovation does not mean there are more than one man of God in the place. I just want to make sure that we're going to be one of those people. 
Because God obviously is highlighting this guy for a reason. And what's clear is he's listening. He's listening to God. So the man of God said to the king, and he said, Beware that you don't pass through this place. Because the Syrians are coming down there. Now, for what it's worth, and, and I don't put a whole lot of stock in it, but it's important to at least, it'd be fair to say, some of you are familiar with a man named Josephus. Mm-hmm. Well, Flavius Josephus, who was, in essence, originally, probably you're aware of this, he was actually originally a rebel leader. So, did he wear white? Were those the guys in the white plastic outfits, Daniel, the rebel leaders? Or is that? Anyways. <laughs> okay, there's well, okay. Well, anyway, yeah, yeah, I was just I was trying to connect them. Yeah. Uh, but basically, he lived in um, he lived in Magdala, which, of course, we know the most famous person from Magdala is a gal named Mary. And Magdala was famous for being a place where all the zealots and the Sakari, the knifers, you know, the Londoners, would kind of come and. Uh, and he was originally taken captive, but they found out that he was a very bright guy. So they wound up being hired to be a historian. Mm-hmm. And so he was Jewish, and he was very proud to be Jewish. But then ultimately became, in essence, a historian for the, for the Romans. Now, all of that to say, he would actually say that Yehoram, the guy that came in the north, just to say north Yehoram, um, would love to hunt. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what he said. And so the idea of it was is that the Syrian king said, well, we're going to go find out. That's where the park is. They're trying to find a place to find him. Like, although, in my opinion, the last place you want to go and actually try to get someone is when they're hunting. Because one thing for sure, if they're hunting, they're armed. Uh, what do I know? Uh, anyways, all of that to say, it tells us that the men of God says, don't go there. The Syrians have put themselves in a place. They're waiting in ambush. And you know how that is. And so the king of Israel, notice what he does in verse 10. He doesn't just take them on face value when he checks it on himself. The king sends someone to the place in which the man of God had told him. And thus he warned him. And he was watchful there, not just once or twice. That's a very polite way of saying it. In other words, a whole lot of times this happened. Now, that's what makes it funnier to me. So the king's waiting, I'm sorry, the Syrians too, are waiting to ambush and no one shows up. And they're like, hmm, we better switch to another place. So they switch to another place. They are ready, and they're all there. They're in star formation. Everyone's down on their squats, and they're actually, they're looking through their scopes. No one shows up. They're like, wow, let's go to our third. We'll go here. So they go to the third place. No one shows up. And after a while, like how many, not just once or twice, I mean at least three times. And finally the king's going, all right, who's the mole? <laughs> right? Somebody is grasping on us here. Someone is clearly getting this info out. Someone's been bugging us. Now, it is important to note this, by the way. The enemy is ready to ambush. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. But God did not let you go into an ambush. It is amazing how we can focus on the enemy's ambushes instead of on God's word that will keep you from it. And we spend all of our time, it's like, here a demon, there a demon, everywhere a demon, demon. And it's like, I'm afraid that if I pour my cereal wrong, a demon will fly out of this thing and it'll like, 
You know, it's like we we live in this place where we're in constant fear. It's like the enemy is so huge, and God's like this little thing in a corner, like a genie that we have to refer to. It's insanity what we've done to the Almighty while we've aggrandized. And it doesn't mean they're not bigger than us, but it tells us greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And that's the point of this. And understand, I love what, what David would say in Psalm 19. Listen to this in verse 9. This, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord, by the way, are clean and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than silver, even more than gold, even better than fine gold. And he tells us this, and they're sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, because by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there's great reward. God doesn't want you led into an ambush. And if you're willing to listen, he'll keep you from it. Now that doesn't mean, and please understand, there is a big difference between an ambush and a discomfort. An ambush, you're going to find yourself in sin. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to be the one to give the enemy props every time I miss a bus. Because what if the Lord had me miss that bus so that I could share Jesus with somebody on the one bus I am going to catch? I could be so busy giving the enemy credit, I'm missing the fact that God actually wanted me to, to catch another bus for another reason. And now I'm predisposed to not doing His will because I'm too busy focusing on the enemy. And you go, it's like what the Lord doesn't want is you're getting ambushed by the enemy who is a liar and a tempter. Because those are the two things He doesn't want you biting into. Now, with that in mind, I do love the fact, and you want to hear a crazy verse? It's one of my favorite verses from Scripture. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. And the term there, by the way, is does not live in a constancy of it. But he says, but he keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. What a wild verse. So I was like, oh, I was just laying there, and the, the enemy was, the, the devil was whooping on my head. First of all, let me ask you something. Does it say anywhere in Scripture that the devil could be more than one place at a time? No. There's only one person I know that can be and everywhere at once, and that's God. The Creator, not the created. And I honestly do not have that bloated view of myself to think that if the enemy really could go after someone, I'd be on his list. Now, I'm sad that I'm not on this list and happy. <laughs> I've read Job. I'm happy that I'm not on that list. But on the other hand, I'd like to be at that place where he's like, well, if we're going to really shut something down, go after that guy. You know? But if we're going to be honest about it, that doesn't mean he doesn't lie, and that doesn't mean those who serve him, obviously he has his own, aren't going to lie and try to tempt. I don't doubt that for a moment. But he can't touch me. I had to do it. That's it. I kept myself. I'm bored of God. Can't touch it. Oh, it's so sad. Yeah, I said, like, tell me another story, Dad. Here's the point in all of this. Is that Elisha is clearly speaking the word of God. But the king doesn't have to listen. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going there anyway. But in heeding it, there's great reward. And by it, your servant is warned. But by God's grace, he did, at least he did the skeptical thing versus the cynical thing. The skeptical thing is, well, let's go find someone to see if it's true or not. And he sent someone, he's like, yep, they're there. It's like, all right. 
So now the and this is just where it gets funny. So the king, of course, is calling all of his people together. He's like, alright, fetch up which one of you is the mole? Right? And I love what this guy says. One of his servants, we don't even have this a name for this guy. He's one of the king's servants. He says, actually none of us, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who was in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. Now, I don't know about you, but does that freak you out a little bit? I'm learning this. That there are people who are, there are modest, it's a very small group of people, that that's the biggest reason why they don't want their privacy invaded. And then there's the vast majority of people who don't want their privacy invaded because they're doing something wrong. You know? But imagine, like, okay, what you're saying in your bedroom, you're telling people. You've been, you've been bed bugged. That's what that means. Now, back in chapter 5, when Nachaman the Syrian commander came to be healed. He's like, no, he needs to know there is a prophet in Israel. So there, they've learned there's a prophet in Israel. And they've learned it. And one guy's like, mm-hmm. now, what do you do when a guy can see you and know what you're saying? He says, you know what? Let's go take him by surprise. <laughs> Any of you like, go, that doesn't add up. Now, maybe he had this meeting. Maybe he went, okay, you guys, and they had the meeting in the living room instead of the bedroom. But if he knows what you're saying in your bedroom, do you think it's just there? <laughs> so he's like, I know what we're going to do. We're going to sneak up on, on the guy that hears everything you're saying. <laughs> it is amazing how we think we can outsmart God at a moment like this. Right? The God who, by the way, doesn't wait in the car when you want to go out and do something stupid. The same God is not going to wait in the closet when you put on something because you know you're going in the wrong place or going to do the wrong thing. And it's like, God's like, I'll wait here. Because it tells us, you don't even know, because what Paul says, by the way, about it is, do you want to unite Christ to a prostitute? In other words, you want to go, no matter what you're doing, you're taking him with. Now there's good news and bad news to that. That is, you're never going to be left alone. That's the good news. The bad news is, you're never going to be left alone. <laughs> is that fair? Now, in this situation, imagine, uh, this to me is so humorous, because the king of Syria is like, I know what we're going to do. And did he write it on clay? I mean, what would you do? Would you at least charade it or something? Or, you know? <laughs> and there's so many options. So they're like, okay, so where's he at? Verse 13, they said, go and see where he is, that I may go get him. Yeah, good luck with that. And so they told him, saying, he's in Dolphin. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this. Dose is only mentioned twice in Scripture, and this is the second of the times. Does this sound familiar to any of you? Other than Dan. I'm just going to say that Dan knows this, because he's a Bible teacher and super gifted. <laughs> in Genesis 37, do you know, by the way, who gets more press than anyone but Moses in all of the Torah? Almost. Somebody even more than him. One of his kids. Joseph. And yet he's not from the Messianic lineage. I mean, it's interesting to think, but boy is he a character type. It's like when God pulls you out of that lineage, clearly he's showing you something more in situation than he is obviously in the lineage. And in the situation, it is the one faithful guy 
among 12, I should say under 10, because he's got to be under 10, with 10 faithless shepherds. Do you remember the story? He goes to check on his brothers. And they're supposed to be watching the sheep. And he goes, will you go check on your brothers? And, and of course, I will say this. Joseph's supposed to be remarkably wise. And he is. He can interpret dreams, yes. But he is dumb in this. He told his brothers his dreams. Now, I don't know about you. Do you have, do you have any older brothers? Yeah. Imagine going, I have this dream. Now, you're already dad's favorite. Because dad's got four gals that are kind of contributing to the family pool. And uh, his favorite happens to be well, having to have one child in the beginning. And that's you. So you're... Though you're number 11, you're treated like the firstborn, and you have these dreams that you're going to be over them, and you tell your ten older brothers? Yeah, anyways. <laughs> it is going to come to pass, anyways. But, but in that, he goes to check on his brothers, and they're not even where they're supposed to be. And he has to give this report that they are evil shepherds. They're bad shepherds. And you know where they went? To Dalton. One faithful guy among a bunch of unfaithful shepherds. And what do we have here? One faithful guy among a bunch of unfaithful shepherds. Seems fitting. Now, where is he in Dothan? So they sent horses and chariots and a great army there. That's a good way to sneak up on them. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So here we are, sleeping. Everything's nice and quiet. You hear a little bit of a rustle. And this wakes up the servant of the man of God in verse 15. That's another definite article. Mm-hmm. Now, here's our problem. Elisha had a specific servant. What was his name? Do you remember? Gahati. But there's a problem with Gahati at this moment. Do you remember what his problem is? Oh yeah, he's a leper now. Yeah, that's a little rough. Now, he, he got that, of course, because... When the Haman, the Syrian commander, was healed, cleansed, he went over to try to get a buck out of it. Remember, he chased after him and said, "Oh, by the way, surprise! We had this guest show. I don't know. I don't know where they came from. He's got some money, and he gives them all of this stuff. And of course, you know, the Haman, the, the soldier, is like, "Yeah, no worries, man. Come on. I offered all this and more before. So here, have a little bit." And he kind of comes back and then tries to hide it in his tent. Now, I don't know what a servant thinks he's going to do with a couple changes of clothes, as if Elisha, the guy who sees what this guy's doing in his bedroom, is going to go, oh, where'd you get that? Oh, this old thing. You know, and all that money's falling out of your pocket. But anyways, all of that, and of course he gets nailed and he goes, hey, that, that uh, leprosy, that left, that man, it's going to cling to you. Now, but it isn't the last time we see him by name. Because a chapter and a half later, he's going to be actually with the king of of Israel, which I think is strangely fitting because I think the king of Israel is kind of a leper, but spiritually. Um, mm-hmm. But let me ask you something, just a little, out of a little trivia. Can anyone think of an, a Jewish person in the Old Testament that was healed of leprosy? Because there's only one. Miriam. Bang, bang in it. Mm-hmm. Miriam was the only one. Now, fairness, there was one point where Moses stuck his hand in and it was leprous and he stuck it out. I was like, hey, well, okay, it's better. <laughs> but, genuinely a leper, it was, it was definitely uh, very. So, okay, now, is this Gahati? Maybe. Is it not Gahati? Maybe too. It's a 50-50 chance. Either it is or it isn't. But, 
it's clearly, and if he was, if he's a leper and he's like, you're fired, and now he goes to hang out with the king, and there's a new thus servant, we just don't have his name. Or it's Gehazi, but what's clear is the guy is not a man of great faith, at least at this point. The servant of the man of God arose early and went out, and there was the army surrounding the city. That would be alarming. With his horses and chariots, and his master said to him, Alas! Because who uses that word? That's crazy. My master, what shall we do? And I love, hear me on this, because in situations like this, all you see is what you're surrounded by. And it looks like no matter where you turn, this is coming at me. No matter where you turn, it's coming at me. He says, what do I do? What do and by the way, I love the fact, notice he says, what do we do? He goes, well, let's start with what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't fear. Because at a moment like that, when you see something that looks like a crisis, the first thing is, what do I have to do to fix this? How do, I, how, do, how do we get this? What do we do? I love the fact that it doesn't say the battle's not yours, it's ours. No, actually it says the battle's not yours, it belongs to the Lord. It's his battle, the fight not yours. But one thing's for sure, if you've ever actually been in a fight that's actually involving more old person than yourself, I was born in Chicago, and I'm not proud of it, but I've been in a few of these. The last thing you want are guys that are really afraid next to you. Because when you're in a survival situation, they're not going to think straight. And God's like, if you are freaked out, you're in no position to watch what I'm about to do. You know why you're freaked out? Because you haven't seen the whole picture. You are really good at inspecting the problem. But the problem actually isn't the universe. And you feel surrounded by it, but you don't know that the thing that's surrounding you is also surrounded. You just can't see it. You get so freaked out. Now, I don't think any of us are, are dumb enough to think that my fist is larger than the sun. Even on... And now, by the way, in case you've forgotten... It's, it's this burning thing that sits in the sky behind that grip. Uh, you know. But I can take my fist and I can hold it up like this and block out the sun. Now, I can't block out all of its effects, but I can block myself from seeing it. But that does not make my fist larger than the sun. It just makes it a lot closer to And I can take my problems and I can do the same thing. And in a moment like that, when I pull them really close to me and I stare at them and I freak out and I stare at them some more, as if that's going to help. It really makes God look small, which makes no sense at all. What do we do? It's like, first of all, let me tell you what you shouldn't do. Don't be afraid. Let me tell you why. Because we're the majority. And if you are with the Lord, with the infinite Almighty, you will always be the majority. They have more money. <laughs> so, not the middle of God. But they have the press. 
They have all this momentum. And you are only seeing what's around you. But you're not seeing what's around it. In the same way that that enemy was waiting to ambush, but God kept you from every one of those things if you were willing to listen. Because you're focusing on the right thing. You're listening for the Lord. You know, the Lord's like, let me just tell you about end times. Just a quick recap. It's going to get really ugly. Wars, rooms of wars, earthquakes, fires, pestilence. Pest, you know what pestilence is, right? Mm-hmm. It's like massive worldwide diseases. Mm-hmm. You know, have you ever seen what we've seen in the last 10 years? It's like, you know, wow, gosh. Did we know we found something that came out of a chicken? Wow, we found something that came out of a monkey. Congratulations. It's like, wow, how come the PETA guys are getting? Anyway, sorry. But it's, but it's like amazing. It's like, and now it's like, oh, we've got Ebola that's going to spread across the world. We've got, it, you know, it, I remember when AIDS first was like, nobody had any idea what in the world to do with that in the 80s. It was a crazy, crazy thing. And the reason I say that is he goes, this is all going to be happening. I warn you already. Famines worldwide. Because when you see these things, freak out. No, that's not what you say. <laughs> when you see these things, read the news more. No, no, he doesn't say that either. There's, there's no hope there. When you see these things, look up. Because your redemption draws near. Mm-hmm. So, what are you looking at? Are you looking at all the problems? Are you looking up? Because there is no peace in looking at the problems. Now, I'm not telling you ignore them. I'm telling you be aware, but then look at the answer. The answer is not going to be found in the problem, it's in the problem solver. So, what do we do? Don't fear more of us than there are of them. And let's pray. Lord, would you just open your eyes? And I, pardon me, this is my rendering of it in my own crazy head. I see him being woken up and he's a little grumpy. He's like, what the... God, would you just open his eyes? <laughs> Good night. And these, what it says is that he opened his, the Lord opened his eyes and he saw these chariots all around chariots of fire. Well, we already know a chariot of fire, right? Because of the move. No, because Elisha, the guy before him, had been whisked up in one. But you thought that was exclusive. Oh no, God's got an entourage. Twice, by the way, the term chariots is used in Psalms, both times written by David, Psalm 20 and Psalm 68. And he tells us this, some trust in chariots and some in horses. We're going to trust, by the way, instead and remember the name of the Lord our God. So the first one was about man's chariots. But the second one, David speaks about God's. The chariots of the Lord are 20,000, even thousands upon thousands. Now when you say thousands upon thousands, you know what you're saying? There are too many for me to count. And the Lord is among them all inside in his holy place. He goes, David's like, I walked by for just a moment and I saw God's garage and this kid is decked out with more chariots than I can count. Thousands upon thousands. It's like rows of thousands on thousands. And one of them should be enough. We'll know that there's one angel that's going to take out 187,000 Syrian soldiers later. Spoiler alert. Clearly God doesn't have a problem with this. And they just see him all around. And at this point, what do you think the servant did? I think the servant's like, well, okay. Good night. Did you go back to sleep? <laughs> right? What would you do at a moment like that? Would you go, oh, i got to go check out those 
I mean, there's, there's two sides of it. There's the rest side of it, and there's the curiosity side. So, in verse 18, it says, the Syrians came down to him. Now, here's the best part. So, the Syrians are going to go, and I remind you, the Syrians are surrounded by these chariots of fire. Now that we're able to see this for this brief moment. And they come down to him, and here's the crazy part. They're all kind of running, and imagine, they're about to charge the, charge the, the camp, right? They're going to go charge the camp. And so, they're like, ah! And they're like, hey, excuse me for a second. They stop! <laughs> Is that weird to you? Because it's weird to me. That's like, I mean, you ever see like those Lord of the Rings trailers or those kind of things and it's like, you know, CGI armies. They're like, ah! And one guy's like, hold on a second. You're in the wrong place, man. And I think this is just so funny. It's like, this isn't the way. But before that, this was the best part. The Syrians came down. Elijah prayed to the Lord and he says, strike these people, please, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now, you've read the end of the story. Can you think of any other time God struck someone with blindness? What's that? Oh, he struck Saul with blindness. Yes, he did. Stopped him in his tracks, didn't it? How about in the Old Testament? Can you think of any time God struck people with blindness? Sodom. Remember the angel kind of came? And then they were like, mm, we want to know this guy. And God struck him with blindness, and they still banged on the door anyways. Right? <laughs> Acts 13 struck Elemas with blindness. And then there's this crazy text in Isaiah where it says about Israel, he's blinded their eyes. And people go, well, that means he wants to send them to hell. Well, wait a minute. As a result of the Syrians getting blinded, what happened? One, they were kept from going to where they were going to go. In the case with Sodom, they were kept from getting to where they wanted to go. In the case with Paul, he was kept from going to where he wanted to go, the way he wanted to get there. He stopped them from getting where they wanted to go. Same thing with Elma, the source of also calling himself Bar Jesus. In this case, what's the end result of the Syrians? They got a feast and they were sent home where they would die. Do you see the crazy mercy in that? He struck them with blindness so they weren't killed. How wild is that? And then they say, well, God's blinded Israel's eyes. Could it be to stop them from going the direction they're trying to go right now? So they would turn to him and he would open their eyes? Because it says, when one turns to the Lord, in Second Corinthians, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Well, so they're blinded. And he goes, oh, you're in the wrong place. I know who you're looking for. Who are they looking for, by the way? They're looking for the guy who's talking to them. That's what they're looking for. Which apparently, which is clear, what that means is 2,000 and, you know, uh, 2,850 years ago, they did not have speech recognition software, or they would have known, right? So he's like, oh, you're in the wrong place, and you're, now I will show you the guy you're looking for. Now, is he going to show them the guy they're looking for? Sure. They just don't know he's leading them somewhere else, right? 
So he's surprised at me. Right. So and we bring in Nettie Six, so we led them right into the capital. And then he goes, Alright, Lord, open their eyes now. So he opens their eyes and they're like, uh oh. They're actually in the capital. Which by the way you have to imagine is the heaviest uh armed place. It'd be like trying to run it's like, okay, there's a lot of places you could probably get in trouble running around and doing stupid things, but you try to run into ten Downing Street. It's, you're going to be surrounded by an awful lot of armed guys. <laughs> you know. Now, you with me so far in all of this, because we're almost done. The end result of this, I remind you, is there's going to be no more raid. This is going to stop the raid. But what did they do? They brought him to the king. Did you find that interesting? Mm-hmm. Now, in this case, it's, a, it's not a completely healthy... Uh, analogy only in the sense that this king was a doofus. But when you are in a battle and it's full frontal and you are just just came at you, you know, you're trying to be pure, you're trying to keep your thoughts pure, and then that person walks by and you're like, let me just give you a tissue to double your clothing content. You know, the, the kind of horrible stuff that happens out there. Uh, you know, or you see something. I was raised violent. That's kind of my or was my weakness. And it's like, when I still see people mistreating, there's a part of me that's like, wants to jump in on that thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that could just totally take you by surprise. You're sitting on a bus and some guy just acts like a total jerk. And you're like, oh. And you're, you know, all right, I'm going to take it to the king. I'm going to take it to the king where he's on his throne and I'm going to lay it there because if I don't lay it here at this moment, I'm going down. And it's like, because at a moment like that, I'm going to be, I will be the one blinded. I'll be blinded by rage, I'll be blinded by that temptation, and I won't even see anything but it for the moment. And he's like, took it right in the middle of it all. And this is what the king says. The only time he's going to call Isha is my father. Usually he's called him jerk and troublemaker in one way or another. He's like, oh, should we kill him? Do we kill him? He's like, are you kidding me? Because would you kill all your prisoners? Would God, when he takes someone captive, do you think he's going to just kill him? What he really wants is from the joint. Now, he says, you know what Jesus told us? He told us, do stuff that no other human being on earth will do. Like, bless those who curse you. You realize, Christians should be the only people on the planet that will do this. The problem is, we don't want to do it either. You know why? Because we're human. But you know, and he's like, and pray for those who persecute you. But when he says that, he's not saying like, pray one of those like Davidic prayers. God, break their teeth in their mouth. I prayed for them. No, he's like, like, what? I mean, what would you pray for a person that's cursing you? Like, well, because what God really wants for that person is to get saved. That's what He really wants, and He would love for you to be a part of it. He goes, do you know what happens when you're actually being kind to your enemy? It's like keeping hot coals upon her forehead. Now, anyone go, what? <laughs> and there are, I've, I, and I'm not a big commentary reader, but I have read some of the craziest thoughts. Like people in repentance would put a coal on their head. And then you'd repent of that. I, I, I mean, I, and I can tell you, I have searched the world and I've been a whole lot of places and I've gone... The two places you usually go is Africa and the Middle East. Those are fair places to look. And I've sat with people in every place I can find and go, does anyone do this? 
And they're like, that is the craziest thought I've ever heard. So they're like, hey, so that you've repented. I can see this burn scar on your forehead. Uh, no, I'm not telling you it doesn't happen. I'm just telling you I can't find any legitimate backing for that. So I'm like, Lord, could you just show me something that would just make sense? So this is my opinion for what it's worth. And I want to make that really clear. But clearly there are besieging moments. And what you really want is for them to not be there. That's fair, right? What is the first line of defense for a bunch of tents? You shoot firebrands onto their tents. What happens when you shoot a firebrand onto a tent? tent catches fire, and they leave the tent. And that is, when I would talk to the guys in places like the IDF and the Saad, they still use the term raining coals on their head. And the idea of it is we send it overhead, and it's sent down, and it lands on their tent, and they leave their tent. Could it be for consideration, when we are kind to our enemies, and I'm not talking about giving them purpose to do things that blaspheme Jesus. But when we seek to be kind to somebody who clearly seems to have a problem with God and we are representing him, could it be that what we were doing is evacuating the enemy's camp in front of them? That at least makes sense to me. Nonetheless, in this situation, they open their eyes and they're like, should I kill him? Should I kill him? And let's face it, those raiders would be like, that's what people do. And by the way, that would be what you do with raiders as you kill them. Unless, of course, they come to your house and they're stealing the career criminals in your 80s, 78. Sorry. No, sorry. Um, <laughs> now, he says, no, 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 of course not. If you've taken them captives, treat them well. But look at verse 23 as we close this up. Then he's prepared a great feast for them. Now, can you imagine when you woke up this morning? That's probably the last thing on your head. Because you know what's going to happen today? We're going to go, and we're going to go chase, and we're going to go destroy the Israelis. But actually, it's not going to happen that way. We're going to be blind, led into a city, and they're going to make a big feast for us, so we're going to see you again. <laughs> Nobody would believe that. Text. <laughs> so they ate and they drank, and then they sent them away. Bye, you guys. Have a nice day. Be safe. And they went to their master. So the band of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Here's the last thing on this. The next thing that's going to happen, spoiler alert for next week, is that Ben-Harbed, the king of Syria, is going to go besiege the people. He's going to go besiege Samaria. And he's going to do it long enough to make it really miserable. Here's the thing for me. What the heck? His chief commander has been healed of leprosy, and these band of raiders are like, they should have killed us, we were blinded. I remind you, they were doing this because... What the king was saying in his bedroom was actually now being publicized on Good Morning, you know, London. And, and while all of this is happening, he's like, they come back and they're like, yeah, we were blinded, and then we could see, and then we ate, and then they said bye, and they gave us hugs, and we left. And it's like, and the king's like, wow, let's kill them another way. <laughs> there are just some people out there, they're just going to be like this. But he's got a smaller army now because the raiders are leaving. 
And there are going to be those who will not repent. And clearly, by the way, the enemy of our souls has no intention of repenting and will not to the very end. Neither will, by the way, a great portion of people as we see in the book of Revelation. People, by the way, I challenge you, if you're a Bible student, to look up the term, those who dwell on the earth. There will be a specific term used about people who are going to be committed to being unrepentant. Shaking their fist at God. While others will be like, what am I thinking? Clearly you are the one to worship. And here's my thought as we go to prayer. Where are we at, first of all, with God being bigger than the enemy, practically, in our prayers, who's bigger? In our concerns, who's bigger? Are we quicker to listen to his word and know that he will steer us from the ambush? Are we quicker to live in fear? Because my God took on everything the enemy had to offer. And he rose up three days later and said, is that all you got? And that's the one who lives inside of me? How could I ever think to be the minority? The world who seems to have, and by the way, John tells us in 1 John 5, is under the sway of the wicked one. Everything they have is temporary. This is as good as it gets for them. This is as bad as it gets for us. And it's not bad. Should it surprise us they're trying to hold on to it and save it every way they can? They're God's the Titanic, and they are trying to put, prop this thing up and put floaties under it. It's going down whether they like it or not. And we're like, not a problem. This isn't my home. Which one's really bigger in our life? When somebody doesn't know Jesus and they walk around beside you, will they see your peace or fear? Will they see your victory? Or will they see you freaking out? And that doesn't mean we ignore the problems. They're just not as big. That's the first question. I think it's a fair one to ask. But then the second is, well, let's talk about those bigger problems, people. What happens when someone really, just for whatever reason, decides you are the cross here that they really want? You are the thing, for whatever reason, my whole life ambition is to make you fall and to make you miserable. Now, more than likely they didn't wake up thinking that, but you might think they woke up thinking. And that might be a boss or a neighbor or whatever. And someone in church. What do you do? No, we do nothing to encourage a person to live a life of rebellion against God, especially, especially if they're claiming to be his. So you don't even need a person like that. But when somebody is just being nasty, be the one person who isn't bad. And watch what God does. Because again, we are just giving God space. And I remind you, you may think whatever you have surrounds you, but God always has you surrounded. And that is good news. So as we go to prayer, I want to pray that for all of us in this. But maybe you're in the moment where you feel like you're in full frontal attack. Well, let's get it to the king. Maybe you're in a situation where you feel like, man, I just feel like I'm besieged. I just feel like it's a long, drawn out, thing. Well then might I just say, come back next week. Alright. Uh, that's what we'll address next week.
Let's go to prayer. God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. How good you are. I want to thank you, Lord, that we could look at a situation that took place thousands of miles away, thousands of years ago, and it is as pertinent today as it ever was. I mean, we could even go and say Israel's still in issues with Syria right now. That's clear and obvious. I mean, just down the line. But even this whole idea of these full frontal, surprising attacks that just blindside us sometimes. And yet, Lord, you wish to keep us from those ambushes. And we are, as David would say, he's hidden your word in his heart that he would not sin against you. And he would cry out, deliver me from presumptuous sins, from secret sins, from things that I would just in carelessness step into. And then he would say in Psalm 19, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleased. that be our song and cry tonight. And I want to thank you so much, Jesus, for dying on the cross for us, for all of our sin and shame, for taking on all of the weight and the gravity of the guilt of the world and to place it upon yourself and to die there, to take the strongest blow of the enemy, death itself, and then to walk out of that tomb days later on the third day showing that even death itself could not hold it. And the moment we said yes to you according to Ephesians 1.13 you placed your Holy Spirit inside of us so that we could walk in that victory and that newness of life. Forgive us for where we have taken the problem and made it like a fist in our face to keep ourselves from seeing how big you are. And I just pray whatever battles are being thrust at us right now, we would take them to the King as we take them to you now. Show yourself victorious over all of us. We pray. We just want to say a fresh and new way yours. And we thank you for wanting.